welcome. Uh, welcome to LSE uh, for this lunchtime event, which is kicking off this year's uh, LSE's 7th Space for Thought Literary Festival, which is running throughout the week with the theme Foundations. And this event is being hosted by LSE Spectrum, which is LSE's uh, LGBT staff network. And that's a group based within LSE, which aims to promote the interests of LGBT staff and raise the profile and respond to any issues that may impact on them. And if you're interested in finding out more, you can email them at the general address of spectrum at lse.ac.uk. I'm Sue Donnelly, and I'm the LSE archivist, and for many years I had the great privilege of being uh, associated with the Hall Carpenter Archives, which are based in the library here, uh, which is an archive of LGBT activism in the UK. And so I'm really delighted to welcome Richard Parkinson to LSE today. Currently, Richard is Professor of Egyptology at the University of Oxford, but in a previous life, he was a curator at the British Museum. And today, he's going to talk to us about a groundbreaking LGBT history project at the British Museum, which appeared as this book, A Little Gay History, uh, which has drawn on objects ranging from ancient Egyptian papyri to images by modern artists to look at how and why museums should represent same-sex experiences in world culture. If you're going to tweet, we have a hashtag, which is hashtag LSE Litfest. But can you please have your phones on silent? Um, this event is going to be recorded, so I'm hoping that it will go out as a podcast in the next few weeks. Richard's going to talk for about 35, 40 minutes, and we'll have a chance for questions after that. Um, we have to be out by 2 o'clock as uh, teaching begins again. But I'll ask Richard to move. Thank you, Philip. Thank you. about a recent LGBT history project, and I'll speak not so much about research into the history of sexuality, but the issues of how we mobilize that for maximum impact, and the museological, institutional, cultural, and political issues that can be at stake. I'll take you through the project, um, which was quite extended, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Now, I suspect that the British Museum is not often thought about as a good location for gay sex, but over the past decades, it has put on several um, relevant, uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, several relevant exhibitions, in particular one about the famous Roman Warren Cup from around 10 AD. This cup was acquired by the British Museum in 1999, and it's been on permanent public display ever since. In 2005, it was at the centre of a temporary exhibition on sex and society in ancient Greece and Rome, uh, with some 92,000 visitors. In 2008, the Emperor Hadrian's relationship with Antinous was celebrated in a blockbuster special exhibition, Hadrian, Empire and Conflict. This last had considerable impact, 
that visitor surveys reveal that many of the public, and there were some 236,000 visitors, had been unaware of the emperor's sexuality. Labels in this exhibition simply described Antinous as Hadrian's lover. And this explicit simplicity is a measure of how things have changed in museums over the past few decades. And such changes are hopefully, but not necessarily, irreversible. The British Museum is far from um, unique in these respects, and many other museums have um, mounted displays featured on LGBT and gender issues, including the National Art Museum in Copenhagen, with a dedicated permanent gallery and a very fine small guide to the paintings. And nevertheless, I'll explain why this project has been a useful example to discuss some issues of LGBT history and research. Now, I'm not a historian of sexuality. I am simply a gay Egyptologist who specialises in Middle Kingdom literature from around 1850 BC. And the poetry of this period addresses the dark side of perfection and articulates ideologically non-normative themes. And the earliest known chat-up line in human history is one between two male deities that's preserved in this corpus. And it's what, what a lovely backside you have. <laughs> now, in, it's fairly um, unambiguous. In 1995, I discussed some of these themes in an article on same-sex desire in uh, Middle Kingdom poetry, which includes another tale in which a general um, is, happy, is having a secret affair with his pharaoh. And from this work, I was asked to, to a conference on gender in Swansea in 2005. And this addressed um, a tomb quite close to Cairo at Saqqara um, from the Old Kingdom, which is shared by two men who are shown embracing. And this has been interpreted as a socially sanctioned same-sex partnership. And so it has given um, rise to quite a substantial public controversy in 2006 about the so-called first gay kiss. However, I regret to say they are almost certainly twins, but such ancient images pose basic questions about the extent to which gay identity and same-sex desire can be identified in any historical record. And given the fragile nature of LGBT rights in modern Egypt, such historical interpretation is not a purely academic matter, and research on such topics has to be irrefutably accurate or it risks a backward step. Now, in 2007, Kate Smith, a museum freelancer, decided to write an LGBT web trail around the British Museum for the London-based Culture24 website. The British Museum press officer, knowing about my research, um, put me in touch with, uh, with me. I was sort of nominated as the token gay curator. And I helped her to liaise with colleagues as she compiled the trail. Um, a few years later, the organisers of the UK's LGBT History Month approached the museum's community officer, wanting to use the Bloomsbury Building as a venue for their annual pre-launch. And so I suggested that we revised and extended the trail and put it on the BM website as part of our contribution to the History Month itself. And so in 2009, the Same Sex Desire and Gender Identity Trail was launched in the presence of the then Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Ben Bradshaw. 
Now, the British Museum web trails all explore fundamental cross-cultural subjects, such as rulers, time, and are meant to encourage people to investigate the full diversity of the collections and the cultures that produce them. Most of the museum's permanent galleries are very culture-specific. The trail was written by the in-house web team, led by David Prudhams, and a colleague, Max Karoki, advised on the anthropological aspects. The trail included some objects that were not on permanent public display due to conservation concerns, but we intended the trail to be actively used in the galleries as well as online. In the end, there were about 20 objects, as wide-ranging as possible, in order to suggest how different cultures construct love, sexuality and gender in many different ways. I wanted to exemplify the uncertainties of the historical process rather than offering any black and white claims that might distract from the sheer depth of LGBT history. A key aim was to remind people that same-sex desire is not a recent phenomenon, as is often claimed, and that is very important politically. And so we discussed where the Gilgamesh and Enkidu in the great Mesopotamian epic poem might be, in the words of Torch Song trilogy, friend, friends, or euphemism, friends. And where the two ancient Egyptians, Hor and Suti, who commemorated themselves together as brothers on this funerary monument, a pair of twins or a pair of lovers. Again, the evidence as a whole suggests they were certainly twins. Now, the Steeler is on public display in a permanent gallery, and there's simply not enough space to address the question of their sexuality on a museum label. A single gallery covers 3,000 years of elite and non-elite social life. But a web trail, based on the permanent displays, allows specific aspects to be explored in more depth. And of course, the museum's online database of the collection allows a fuller treatment of the objects than a simple label. Here, any gay hypothesis can be referenced. The problem is, of course, that desire leaves very few archaeological traces. And we wanted to remind visitors that the presence of LGBT people in history may not always be as immediately obvious or explicit, but that it nevertheless existed and is in part recoverable. The relevance of this quilt from Pakistan lies simply in an anecdote told to the scholar who collected it, that it was made by Hijra, um, a, a transvestite, a member of the transvestite Indian communities. Due to the partial and biased nature of the historical record, men predominated <coughs> on the trail. Women's desire is generally often less visible in the museum's objects, like women themselves, despite some very famous figures such as Sappho, and also some glimpses on domestic items such as this um, Roman lamp from Turkey, now universally known in the museum as the lesbian lamp. We felt that it was essential to stress the worldwide aspects of same-sex desire, and so we included items such as this Maori box. The range of images as a whole was intended as a reminder that there are many different ways of being LGBT. Now, the trail sat as a permanent feature in a fairly rich site and was one of the most visited after those about money and fluffy animals, which is all very English, but it was still remarkably easy to miss. So in 2011, Untold London, a Museum of London project, produced a paper version of the trail um, written by Kate Smith. 
that could be distributed to specific target audiences. And this was an ideal collaboration, since the style of the paper version could be much freer than the BM's rather classical house style. The two institutions complemented each other and produced a very nice, sustainable, easy collaboration. You'll notice, though, there was a change from the neutral term same-sex desire to LGBT. Trailing had revealed that the phrase LGBT was simply not transparent enough for most visitors to the British Museum website. The new paper trail, however, was addressed primarily to an LGBT audience. And so it was publicised in the QX Listing magazine. Kate nearly gave me a heart attack by telling me it had been publicised in the QX Porn magazine, <laughs> which I'm sure the press office would have welcomed, but I'm very glad we didn't have to tell them that. And about a 1,000 were given away at that year's London Pride. The trail became part of the museum's annual calendar with talks and events um, such as Right Queer London. Now, such sustainable collaborations are useful in themselves, but they can also lay strategic foundations for future growth. The success of the trails encouraged me to propose a book to BM Press, who immediately and very supportively commissioned A Little Gay History, Desire and Diversity Across the World, a sort of LGBT history of the world in 40 objects. And I decided that we would expand on the trail in both depth and range, that it should be arranged not thematically, but like a trail, in chronological order. The aim was to be very short, very accessible, but also authoritative, an introduction to the key issues about history and identity in a well-illustrated and engaging format, and for as wide a readership as possible. LGBT research projects and policies are essential, but so is the public awareness of such things. A gift book in this respect can be much more effective than any academic monograph. As Kate Smith remarked at an early stage in planning, the book should be something that a young person who was coming out could read and could also give to their grandmother to read. Now, many of our histories concern silence, oppression, and persecution, but with those aims in mind, I wanted to follow the more positive lead given by Ian Forster, when he remarked of his Egyptian lover, the Alexandrian tram conductor, Mohammed el Argel, When I am with him, smoking or talking quietly ahead, or whatever it may be, I see beyond my own happiness and intimacy occasional glimpses of the happiness of thousands of others, whose names I shall never hear, and I know that there is a great unrecorded history. And this provided us with the title for a general introduction, in which general methodological points could be made, such as the difficulty of finding the right word for the title, and why we ended up with the um, slightly unhistorical gay. And also to touch on important contemporary issues, such as marriage equality, as illustrated with this wedding photograph of an Australian couple who had to go to Canada to get married. The book covers as many continents as we could fit in, and the structure runs from around 9,000 BC to the present. Another aim was to show that a single museum collection could be used to write an LGBT history. Now, inevitably, within a single museum, it can be hard to be balanced and comprehensive over all of the world's cultures. Some, such as Edo Pira in Japan, have given same-sex desire prominence in art forms that have been valued and collected. Others have not, 
such as Africa, where the main evidence for same-sex desire is predominantly textual. Some objects have been valued, some suppressed, some simply not collected by museums, but the modern history of many objects is highly informative about contemporaneous social attitudes, as well as shaping the surviving data for modern historians. It is, of course, a partial, fragmented history, only occasional glimpses, but such is the nature of our evidence, such is the nature of our history and, indeed, of our lives. As you can see, each object was given a page opening with about 250 words. I discovered that when you've just signed a contract to write a history of the world in six months, brevity is a very convenient virtue. <laughs> each object was given a main image, with the secondary one to provide a detail or to help contextualise it. The objects were first chosen in consultation with specialist colleagues. I then wrote the text, and then each section was checked by specialists and signed off by them, and also, where appropriate, by the head of the relevant curatorial department. My own research on Egyptian poetry involves reading against the grain, but we felt that this was not appropriate for this book, and so we made sure every statement could be supported by fairly direct and incontestable evidence to ensure the academic integrity of the project could withstand any criticism. The whole draft was then read over by various external scholars of a range of sexual persuasions, genders, and ages. With some periods, the book explores the collections in a little more depth than in the original trail, as with um, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, who are shown here as butch heroes killing the bull of heaven. Uh, sorry, that's a missing slide. Um, and we, of course, concentrated largely on visual art and texts, simply because these can record desire much more directly than many other sorts of object. But occasionally, material objects give us the irreplaceable touch of the real that texts alone cannot. On the sheet of Michelangelo's that we chose, the combination of the superb drawing of the fall of Phaeton and the elegantly written note to his friend Tommaso de Cavalieri, protesting that it is just a sketch, embodies an infatuating, infatuated self-humility eagerness to impress a young man in a way I think that is instantly recognisable. We tried to include, where possible, quotes from contemporaneous voices in order to evoke how the original actors perceived their lives and to evoke specific experiences rather than generalised historical views. This gave the book texture, but it also provided us, us with protection against any future accusation that it was projecting modern ideas onto early cultures. Despite the uncertainties of historical identity, I felt it was still useful to remind audiences of the great and good historical LGBT figures. And so some of the book's personages are very well known, such as Shakespeare. For the copy of his sonnets, we resorted to the British Library, but this was originally part of the museum's collection, so it wasn't really breaking the rules too much. Another well-known figure is the cross-dressing Chevalier Deon. <coughs> Others, however, are much less well-known. And as far as I know, these ceramic figures were published in the book for the very first time. They are by the expressionist German potter Augusta Kaiser from around 1924 to 5. They were kept by her life partner Hedwig Markart after her death. She left them to her niece, who then gave them to the British Museum. Two of them, as you can see, 
are domestic images of women made by a woman and treasured by a woman. And their very personal acquisition story reminds us how easily such non-normative love stories can be lost. I should say I, I discovered these from joking with a colleague in the canteen that I simply couldn't find enough lesbians in the British Museum. As she walked off, she turned around and said, oh, I've, I've got two in a cupboard for you. <laughs> Indeed, she had. Um, sometimes we had to think laterally, but if you work on an ancient culture, that is what research is all about. I wanted to include Virginia Woolf, but the collection had nothing immediately relevant. There was, however, this new of Knoll, the country house that features in Woolf's magnificently subversive Orlando a biography. And so the book juxtaposes this view with the still of the film by Sally Potter starring Tilda Swinton. Not all histories have to take such a bland, conventional view of heritage as this print does. And it's a ghastly little thing. It's from a sequence entitled Seats of the Noblemen and Gentlemen of Great Britain and Ireland. And this juxtaposition is a reminder that the history behind most normative facades is usually much more complicated, more varied, and more queer than it first appears. One theme that emerged as the book was written was the way in which cultural traditions can shape modern identities, as with this Native American commemorative quilt that draws on traditional forms to commemorate AIDS victims. The more modern parts of LGBT history are surprisingly strong in some of the museum's holdings, in particular the protest badges that can bring our story very close to the present day, including the wonderful example by the great Kate Charlesworth. Similarly, the book includes a print by the Australian artist David McDermott, one of his rainbow aphorisms, <laughs> and this um, witty drag queen pack of cards. The Japanese artist and activist Otsuka Tasaki gave them to the museum with the legal condition that the pack must always be stored, quote, with the queens on top. <laughs> Even within a single museum's collections, we wanted to show that there were, and there still are, many different ways of being LGBT, and not all of them were dead or serious. Gay can remain <coughs> celebratory, witty, and frivolous, even in the face of death and oppression. Many of the images remain quite explicit, for the purely academic reason, of course, that scenes of sex provide the least ambiguous images of same-sex desire. We were not, of course, wanting to increase sales of the book. Um, but I was also keen to prioritise romance, and so we slipped in as many same-sex partnerships as we could, such as Charles Shannon and uh, Charles Ricketts, friends of Oscar Wilde, passing references to Patrick White and Manolino Scaris, Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears, Ishmael Merchant and James Ivory. Of course, many possible objects were omitted due to chances of what has survived and what has been collected, but also, I'm afraid, due to my haste and ignorance. I didn't realise that the British Museum had this Michelangelo sketch of a lustful sinner being dragged to hell by his balls until it was too late. Nothing in the collection that I could find featured the cross-dressers Fanny and Stella, who are the subject of a recent novel by a great colleague, um, Barbara Ewing, the, the Petticoat Men. Or, indeed, we had nothing from the great Tove Janssen, um, the creator of the highly inclusive Moomin family. Our history is always, of course, partial and incomplete, 
for very many reasons. Given this inevitability, any research must be self-aware and self-reflexive. And so the book also considered the British Museum's role in this history. It discussed the now-dismantled Secretum, the secret museum, where phallic objects were all gathered together so they would not pollute the minds of women or the lower classes, and presumably so that gentlemen with special permission could view all the sex scenes in the museum in one very convenient cupboard. And in a similar manner, we included this little-known but magnificent portrait of Michael Noakes, uh, by Michael Noakes of Lord Wolfenden, who not only produced the famous report, but was director of the British Museum during the very years when gay pride started. Most importantly, Greek art in the British Museum has often acted as a touchstone for European gay identity and rights. These queer fictions of the past are never, of course, entirely accurate, but remain an important aspect for the reception of Greek culture and to be very influential in modern politics. In this connection, I was determined to include one of the great stories set in the British Museum, Ian Forster's posthumously published novel, Morris, which has a key scene in the Greek galleries, on an evening when, I quote, the great building suggested a tomb miraculously illuminated by the spirits of the dead. I wanted to include film as an art form in the book, and so we approached Merchant Ivory Productions, who had filmed the novel on location in 1986. And James Ivory very generously offered a range of stills, three, I might add, unlike many other people. And we used three of these in the book, including an unpublished shot of a deleted scene in the Egyptian sculpture gallery, which, of course, appealed to me immensely as an Egyptologist. But this shot is a very vivid reminder of the role that museums can play as a stage for living art, connecting the past and the present and legitimising it. Now, Morris is, to my eyes, the greatest of all gay films, partly because it is completely without stereotypes, but also because it has a happy ending. All too often in modern works of art, same-sex desire has ended unhappily. It's as if everyone doesn't mind a gay couple as long as one of them is conveniently dead, as Christopher Isherwood famously noted in A Single Man. With ancient history, everybody is dead, which of course should make um, gay desire in the ancient world very safe, but it doesn't seem to. Um, a happy ending is not only a nice change, but a moral imperative for any balanced view. And the film, of course, also reclaims for the LGBT community the English pastoral. And it is, like Forster, quietly and heroically queer. And I must admit that getting to know James Ivory was really, for me, the highlight of the whole project. Morris is a work that reminds us that <laughs> culture and art are not always unrelentingly heterosexual. How wearisome, how oppressive it can be to be continually confronted with a world of cultural production that ignores us and excludes us from the usual human drama. What a relief it is to find an exception. Now, of course, there are plenty of gay rom-coms and historical novels, but in the 1980s, things were rather different. This was the age of protest celebrated in the recent film Pride, of Thatcher, and the doom-laden AIDS adverts, where if you kissed another man, you'd be instantly hit by an iceberg. Nevertheless, in 1987, Merchant Ivory moved from the wildly successful Room with a View and chose to make Morris. They filmed it in exactly the same style, 
as if slyly asking, why should anyone treat a same-sex romance as different? Just as Forster in his novels hands the culturally central heritage, call it England, art, Italy, India, whatever, into the hands of the outsider, so the film refuses a marginal role for LGBT life, which seems to me to be profoundly subversive, heroically queer. But where could we end this survey of the past 11,000 years? The hardest thing was to find a final object in order to represent the present moment. We wanted something modern and inclusive, and in the end we went for the contemporary visitor, a reminder that we all are, regardless of our sexualities, part of this ongoing history. And so a carefully staged LGBT-friendly group of visitors is seen looking at the bronze bust of the Emperor Hadrian discovered in the Thames. And this photograph allowed me to lead into the epilogue about Margaret Yourcenar's great historical novel, Memoirs d'Adrien, of 1951, written in French and translated into English by her life partner, Grace Frick. This fictional autobiography is a poetic meditation on life, and it's also intensely queer beneath its cool classical style. At one point in the novel, the emperor mourns the drowned Antinous while the imperial entourage is in Luxor, and he visits a famous colossal statue of an ancient pharaoh which was a tourist site because it seemed to sing at dawn. Instead of leaving yet another official inscription, he simply carves his name in Greek, Adriano, in a single word, as a life sum of which innumerable elements would never be known a mere mark left by a man wholly lost in that succession of centuries. Yosinar based this episode on the official inscriptions on the statue's feet and ankles, recording the visit of the emperor and his family. But there, there are, if you check the publications, none with just his name. Here, the immensely scholarly Yosinar simply rewrote the historical evidence making her empress subvert the state monument with a small sign of the importance of the inner world of an individual, independent of all official normative history. The novel is a masterly example of how history can be written from inside and from a non-normative perspective. Yosinar had visited the British Museum and had seen the bust as a child, and she considered this to have helped the birth of her historical imagination. And that is exactly, of course, what we hope the objects in the book would do, to make people realise that the past is not necessarily heterosexual, and that LGBT people are integral parts of the world, its history and its culture. Now, the book included the manuscript of her novel, which is, unfortunately for our purposes, now in Harvard, and how could we illustrate it from the British Museum's collections? It turned out to be quite easy. Uh, we used this print of Hadrian's Villa by Piranese. It shows the canopus, which was once believed to be a chapel in honour of the deified Antinous at Hadrian's Villa at Tivoli. This view inspired Yosinar, evoking for her a queer monde ultérieur of the emperor's grief. But I treasure it for an additional reason. A print of it hung over the fireplace of the house she shared with her life partner Grace Frick in May. The print is past, present, and above all, personal. And I think we as academics have to speak in a personal voice, 
no matter how exposed that might leave us feeling, because there is simply no other way of speaking about the subject with any academic integrity. What we've ended up with is a short gift book. Little is the key word in the title. It does not aim to embody the ever-growing academic range of queer studies or modern museology. Its aims are simply practical, to be of some use in increasing public awareness of the diversity of desire and identity, and to move some readers beyond the usual stereotypes, reminding them that LGBT history can be defined not only by sex, but also by domesticity. And perhaps, despite its title, it is, in this respect, slightly post-gay. British Museum Press published the book to um, coincide with London Pride in summer 2013, with US and French editions that <coughs> autumn, and even two postcards. It was launched at the wonderful Gaze the Word bookshop in Bloomsbury. The BM's website included a landing page with revised and expanded versions of the thematic trail, a podcast with contributions by Maggie Hambling, Simon Russell Beale, and Barbara Ewing, and an object trail um, to be used in uh, the galleries. And I should say that's a standard Wikipedia image. It isn't a, a shot that we set up to make everything look very gay in the galleries. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Wikipedia was thinking of. <laughs> the book sold very well. Um, and um, the international press was very extensive, uh, thanks to a much-repeated BBC News story um, from the podcast, as well as reviews in national newspapers. And BM Press supported the publicity magnificently with blogs, tweets, events, 3,000 flyers at Pride, and an article in um, the BM, well, the, the Time story, and also an article in the BM Friends magazine. Um, the gay and straight press has been very positive, with hardly any um, reports being at all critical, apart from odd remarks that it is a little bit too short. Uh, but that, as I said, is a virtue in a gift book. I think we were right to assume that the fact that the BM had thrown its academic authority behind LGBT history would attract attention, and um, it earned a stonewall honour um, for the book. One German reviewer described the book as explosive, noting it was published by the British Museum itself with the official stamp of approval by that prestigious institution. Um, tweets included several such as, when will the Met do this? And another, which I always rather wanted be impressed to put as a quote on the cover, but I fear they won't, was simply fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we move forward by stages. And other museums will certainly follow where we have rushed in. I, I know that from speaking to colleagues. But all of this is a side issue in some way. I'm told by a colleague in the British Museum's bookshop that one elderly gentleman broke down into tears while on the phone when he was buying a copy. And he explained his um, outburst by saying he had been imprisoned when a teenager for being gay. While in prison, he later found that his lover had killed himself. And he had never expected to find a national institution including his history. That, not the policies or the public strategy, is why institutions have to publish such books. Past, present, and above all, personal. 
The key thing that enabled this project, I think, was the tone, trying to match the inclusive house style of the British Museum while retaining a non-normative ironic stance. And for this, as I said, Forster provided an inspirational model. Museums and academic institutions are usually very aware of their own audiences, and their house styles may not meet all the desires of queer history. They can seem constraining from a minority perspective, but they usually do exist for good or unavoidable reasons. And I personally would always prioritise a permanent relationship over a special temporary exhibition, simply because LGBT people are not special, nor are they temporary. We need to be a permanent, integral part of history. Going into a museum and queering a collection briefly can have great impact, as with Ars Homo Erotica in the Polish National Museum in 2010. But embedding our histories into the permanent displays is, I think, also an urgent priority. We should think about long-term relationships and legacies. A simple label in a permanent display that presents facts as simple facts precludes any antagonistic reactions. Protest and subversion can take very many forms. And one must be practical in this struggle. Academic truth about sexuality alone does not triumph through verity. Museums for specialist audiences, such as the inspiring Berlin Gay Museum, are invaluable, but international institutions have more diverse audiences and other wider concerns. No matter how ethical and committed to human rights an academic institution is, there are always going to be many different agendas and audiences that demand attention, and that they do not always run parallel to our particular history. Especially in an age of austerity, there are also the issues of sponsors, patrons, relationships with source communities and other governments, who might not be quite as supportive of LGBT history as we would like. There's a hard fact to face, but support for us is still not always without risks for international cultural organisations, and we must be prepared for occasional strategic compromises. However, one thing I believe is beyond compromise. We must not rely on individuals in institutions who simply happen to be committed to LGBT rights for one thing they might leave. We must ensure that all institutions are fully and explicitly institutionally committed to LGBT rights. Implicit support and tolerance is not enough. International and public institutions can give legitimacy and authority to LGBT history. And a museum like the British Museum also brings the sheer range, range of its audiences, six million a year and many more online. And I end by regretfully noting that LGBT histories have often seemed to be aimed at our own community, where they are undoubtedly much needed, as I said. But we can also remember that for our histories to be truly queer, they should perhaps not only be radical, but also accessible, inclusive, multiple, and not monolithic. In preparing the book, I was touched by how supportive all of my colleagues had been, but I was shocked that some liberal and supportive heterosexual colleagues simply didn't get why we need our history so much. We really do need to address everybody. 
visible public gestures by academic and cultural institutions are absolutely vital in embodying, consolidating and legitimising our human rights. And I'm very glad to say um, that my own college in Oxford has the guts to fly the rainbow flag several times a year. It's important because we do need to speak to the world. Love, desire and gender in all their diversity are never minority concerns. All too often we are told that we are hidden from history and marginal, but taking a longer view, that is not really the case. As Yersenau remarked while sitting under that Piranese print, we do not need to avoid the centre. We are as much part of the centre as anyone. The book hopes to remind people that we have always been, always are, part of human history. As such, our histories must not be marginal. We should not be distracted by an exclusive focus on local identity politics. Our heritage and our rights are not minority issues. They are simply general human rights. And even in a silly little gift book like this, we have an immense responsibility to get it right. Lives are at stake if we do not persuade the world to embrace a more inclusive vision of humanity. And behind us stand the dead, who often had fewer opportunities than us to choose how they loved, still less to speak out about it. As Forster remarked in another novel, we fight for more than love or pleasure. There's truth. Truth counts. Truth does count. <laughs>